<laughs> thank you very much. Um, uh, so, Will, thank you. You've just set up lots of what I was about to say, so I can skip over the whole of the first chunk of my talk. So that's always good. We can get out quicker. Hooray. Um, brilliant. So, uh, as Will said, I'm carrying on the uh, sermon series that we've been looking at over the last few weeks in terms of how we hear from God and all the different ways that he might choose to talk to us. Um, Hopefully that you will have um, been here for some of those services. Uh, if you haven't and you'd like to kind of understand a bit about where we've been, then don't forget you could always catch up on, with talks online as well. Um, so uh, if you are interested in any of that, do jump onto the website. Uh, we're going to be um, today looking at a passage in the Old Testament in Kings 19. Uh, so if you, uh, 1 Kings 19, sorry. Um, so if you want to be turning there, um, then please do. Uh, it wasn't entirely planned that the story today um, uh, is about a character who shares the same name as Elijah. Uh, but fortuitously, uh, through a mixture of different events and things, it's led to that actually being the case. So just to clarify, it's not the same Elijah that we're talking about, but let's hope that Elijah that we baptized this morning um, is uh, on a path to be as equally an amazing character and an equally amazing witness for God. So if you would like to um, follow along, it will be on the screen, or you can turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings 19, starting at verse 8. So he, he being Elijah, got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night, and the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came, to, uh, came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face, and he went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? We meet the hero of our story towards the end of the book of 1 Kings. Uh, this is obviously partway through the story of Elijah. A lot, has, a lot has gone before. And by a lot, I mean quite a lot. Uh, I mean it's been quite a roller coaster for him. He's had some high points. He's had some low points. He has been involved in overthrowing unjust and idolatrous uh, rulers that have made life difficult for God's chosen people. The very first thing that God called him to do as a person was to announce that three years of drought was coming upon the land. That's not an easy first task for anybody. 
But in the challenges, whether up high or whether down low, whether announcing famine, whether feeling abandoned in the cave, whether he is announcing to the king that uh, what he is doing is wrong and unjust and ultimately overthrowing him, the distinctive is there that he hears from God and he is led by God. I wonder how many of us can say the same. The whole of his story is characterized by God speaking in different ways, sometimes in the, in the loud, sometimes proclaimed in the dramatic. But sometimes, and this is where we, where we join his story, in the quiet place too. And not only does God speak and Elijah hears, but Elijah responds every time, albeit sometimes a little bit more slowly than the time before. Each time God shows up, and in God's name, Elijah sees amazing and dramatic things happen. But right now, we find Elijah in not such a good place. Despite all that's gone before and all of the ways that God has used him and the ways that God has shown up, Elijah is feeling desolate, he's feeling distance from God, he's not sure what's going on, he's been chased away into the desert, fearing for his life. He's told the king that what the king is doing what the king is doing is wrong, and all of the prophets that the king had protected, who were worshipping other gods, have just been killed. In that moment, his life is threatened. He doesn't know what God is saying. He doesn't know what God is doing. He runs away to the desert. He's gone from the glory of the mountaintop into the despair of the wilderness. I wonder whether we can relate. I wonder whether sometimes we know what God is saying and he's, he's declaring it and things are great and we feel like we're on board with all that he's calling us to in our lives. But then I wonder whether sometimes it also feels like God is way, way, way over there. We can't even see him. We've got no idea what he's calling us to, what he's prompting us to. I wonder, though, whether the issue is not God, but the issue is with us. How do we expect to hear from God? Are we expecting a big sign in the sky? Are we expecting God to shout to us all the time? If we are, then we're missing something of what God is and what he has for us. I'm assuming that not many of us have been involved in overthrowing unjust and corrupt and idolatrous leadership. Maybe some of us have. I'm also fairly sure that not many of us have... Is that, is that true? Yeah, that's all right. I'm, I'm not sure that many of us will have found themselves in a cave wondering where God is and what he's doing. However... I'm pretty sure we will all have had experiences where we feel like we've heard God saying something and we've done it and it's been good and then we think God's not talking to us anymore and we lose it and we're not sure what's going on. I know I have experienced 
a number of times in my life exactly that. And there's one kind of fairly protracted story that I would like to tell you in terms of partly the journey of getting here today to being um, a curate here at Redland. It's not all, spoiler, been high points. Way back in 2013, I was a teacher, uh, and I was an art teacher, and I absolutely loved it. Uh, and then Ofsted came in, um, and Ofsted made life considerably less fun as a teacher. Um, as I say, my subject was art. Uh, they came in, they did their observations. Before they did their observations at the start of the day, they basically said, as a practical subject teacher, under the current not, not the current, the current at the time in 2013, um, under the current assessment criteria, I actually couldn't get above a good lesson observation outcome. I had 20 minutes. In those 20 minutes, I was supposed to uh, explain to the children what they were supposed to be learning, show them what they were supposed to be learning, get them to copy what they were supposed to be learning, and then get them to do the same thing but applied specifically to the project that they were working on as their art project. I don't know how many of you remember back to your art lessons. It's going to be quite tricky to do all four of those things in 20 minutes. And the idea being that they should only ever be learning new stuff. You couldn't possibly teach them something you taught them last week because you know that one of the kids would slip up and they'd go, well, we did this last week. And then it looks like you're cheating the system. That was the first of the points where I heard God say, do you know what? This isn't for you anymore. There's all these people that are coming through that are being trained specifically to teach under this set of criteria. So they knew what they were doing. I'd been teaching for 10 years. It was an entirely different experience when I came in. And as far as I know, uh, there has been some improvements to the offset. I'm not going to go into that, but I think it's probably a little bit easier sometimes for some people. But it just at that point was a prompt from God saying, actually... Are you in the right place? Are you doing the right thing? For a long time, I'd had a dream. And part of that dream was to set up my own community space um, and to do creative stuff outside of the school context, to build community um, and to have that community integrating people into some sort of faith expression, whether that be existing church or doing church a little bit differently. And so... I started to dream, and I began to get the sense that this was the time to pursue some of that stuff. I had a big plan. I wanted a community space. I'd planned it out. I was going to have a cafe. We were going to have art workshops. We were going to have a soft play space. We were going to do kids' art workshops. We were going to do birthday parties. We were going to do adult art workshops in the evening. And it was all really exciting. And I got funding, amazingly. So the council, uh, not the council, the government were giving away pots of money. They gave me 10 grand. Amazing. This is it. Except I had nowhere to do it. And that was a real challenge in London. I don't know how many people have spent time in London at all. Um, but rent in London is very, very, very expensive. And we were in one of the most expensive bits of London for rent. Um, I don't know how many people have been to Southfields in London. It's where you queue for the tennis, effectively, if you've been to the tennis. And it, rent for a, uh, a professional property in South Southfields was extortionate because of the two weeks in the year that everybody queued for the tennis. We found an amazing venue. I looked at this venue. I wanted that venue. No way. 
no way could I afford that venue at all. In the end, Costa took that venue, and the only way that they could afford to take that venue was because in the two weeks of Wimbledon, they made the £80,000 rent, not including business rates and all the other stuff that went alongside it. But they could guarantee in those two weeks that they could pay for it. Let alone me and my business, however good it sounded, was not going to make 80 grand in probably three years, to be fair. So I got to the point where I had this great idea. I thought I was going in the right direction, and it stalled. And then I realized I was trying to fix the problem myself, and I stopped, and I went, God, thank you for this idea. Thank you that you've got me to this point, but now I can't do any more. You need to step up. If this is the right thing that I should be doing, and I feel like it is, I feel like you've called me to this, but you're going to have to fill in the gaps. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. I'm ready, but I can't make this happen by myself. Long story short, I happened to have a conversation with a friend uh, a couple of days later, who then, it's a little bit convoluted, stay with me, um, who then went to New Wine, which is a big Christian festival, um, and he happened to be talking at New Wine, happened to notice the next person that was talking at New Wine, sorry, um, do grab me afterwards if you need any clarification. Um, the next person on, the, on the, the schedule for New Wine lived in Southfield, so he hung around, had a chat to this guy, this guy, who I'd literally no idea who he was, rang me up in the week and offered me their church hall at ridiculously, I mean ridiculously cheap rent. Amazing. Absolutely incredible. I could not have done it without God. I'd heard the, the voice of God. It was a bit of a shout initially. All these big plans, all these big exciting things, being given 10 grand, that's not quiet. That's big. That's God's doing his thing. And then I had to take stock. I had to go, do you know what? I can't do this. God, I need you to help me. I need you in this quiet point where we've hit a wall. I need you to show up. And he did. And it was in a quiet conversation over a coffee in Southfield. No bells and whistles. But it enabled me to do what was coming next. That led to an amazing project. We had such a fun time doing all of the things that we intended to do. Uh, getting people, connecting into the community, being creative. And we found that people were coming along to church. It was brilliant. Everything that we wanted and everything that we dreamed of was happening. Some ridiculous things. We made it into Time Out magazine. I don't know if people know of Time Out. It's a... a a publication that goes out across the whole of London. We were recommended in there. We made it into the Evening Standard. We made it to the Guardian newspaper somehow. I still don't really understand how that ever happened. Um, as a recommendation to come along to this actually not very big, probably half the size of this space here, um, place in Southfields. We made it to number 10 Downing Street. I was chosen as one of the small businesses for that year. There's 100, they choose 100 every year. We were one of them, we were part of their showcase. It was amazing. That was definitely a mountain. And then, quite soon after that point, we then hit a bit of a valley. We hit a bit of a wilderness place. 
The building belonged to the church, as I said. The church had always planned to renovate the space, uh, and we were part of the conversations to be part of the renovated space. It was all looking good. We were going to get a brand new building. 18 months later, having moved out, thinking it would be maybe a 12, 18-month process, literally nothing had happened. I was basically unable to pay myself, pay my staff. We had the tiniest little space. It became obvious that this wasn't going to carry on. What are you doing, God? Clearly, this is what I should have been doing for the last three, four years. What's going on? Well, what seemed to be going on, now that I have the, high, the, uh, the benefit of hindsight, is that God was preparing me for the next stage of the journey, to be able to then step into something new. Didn't know that at the time. It felt very, very wilderness. It felt very, very desolate. The business collapsed, effectively. No idea what I was going to do next. A couple of weeks later, the church invited me to take on managing their cafe. So I kind of did, a little bit hesitantly, I'll be honest with you. Didn't particularly see myself working for church. Uh, and was kind of, I just went, do you know what? There's nothing better to do. I'm going to do this. Okay. Took on the role of, of the church manager, uh, the cafe manager, sorry. But what that did is that enabled me to see a different perspective in terms of the life of the church. And what that did is it shifted my perspective in terms of what God was about to call me to do. I didn't know that in a couple of months' time, in the middle of a church service, God was going to shout at me again, albeit in quite a quiet way, but it was still a shout, it was definitely a shout. And in that church service, two months later, in a fairly mundane service where the person that was preaching was talking about how we could be our best selves and whether we were using our giftings to our full potential, I heard God speak directly to me, and he said, I want you to change what you're doing, I want you to get up at the front there, and I want you to lead the church. Had I heard that six months previously, I would have laughed at him, and I would have run away, and I potentially would never have gone back to that church again. However, Having seen the ins and outs of daily life in the church, having seen the people coming through the church and the way that the community was there to support people in their highs, in their lows, pastorally, financially, with food, practically, all of that stuff, that enabled me to see a different perspective in terms of what God was calling me to. I was still a bit hesitant, I've got to say. I wasn't entirely convinced that I saw myself leading a church within the Church of England. But I had enough of a sense of call to kind of just take the next step. And the next step and the next step. And ultimately, that next step led us to Bristol. I've got another little bit of a story there, if I might. Um, uh, for those of you that don't know, um, the training college in Bristol is called Trinity. It's just the other side of the Downs. We had assumed, having actually gone, do you know what, God, I think I might actually have heard you, and I suppose if it's what you want me to do, then I will go and train to be a vicar, if I have to. Um, uh, I actually really enjoy it now, don't worry. Um, at the time, it was a bit daunting. Um, we'd assumed that we would stay in London, 
There was an obvious training route. I trained one day a week in London at St. Melita, stay at the church that I was part of up in London. But God had other plans. And God had other plans. And in those plans, he chose not to shout and to make some big announcement that a big life change was coming up. He chose to whisper on a number of occasions. One of those occasions I remember distinctly, having been to a meeting with the diocese in London. I started the process up in London, moved to Bristol um, partway through. But part of the, the conversation was in London. Uh, and I'd been to yet another meeting with yet another person from the diocese who I'd yet again had to try and convince. I mean, why was I trying to convince people that I should be in the Church of England? I wasn't massively feeling it myself. Um, at that point, it felt like things were in motion. Uh, we'd started to get this vague idea that Bristol could be a possibility, um, but it wasn't high on our agenda, to be honest. Came out of this meeting, it was in the evening, walking down Stretham High Street, don't know whether people know it, quite busy, quite bustling, quite long, fairly boring, um, quite a mixture of different shops, completely dark. I was in my, own mar in my own head thinking about the conversation I'd had, trying to work out whether actually it was a yes, I might be able to do this, or no, I definitely, definitely don't want to do this. They're weird. Um, walked past a shop, and as I walked past a shop, I, for no apparent reason, came out of my own thoughts and clocked in the middle of an empty shop front an A4 piece of paper. All it was, A4 piece of white paper stuck in the middle of this totally abandoned shop on that, uh, that piece of paper, really small type, just in the middle, choose Trinity. Literally, that was it. And in that moment, that tiny whisper from God was a massive revelation that we were on a different path, that we were heading to something new. And it was really affirming for all of us that actually God had new plans for us. And we're excited about what's happened in the past three years. Jump forward three years, obviously, we came to Bristol, trained at Trinity. We're still here. We're loving being here. We're excited for what God has got for us. But what did I learn from all of this? Yes, God sometimes has to shout to us. But sometimes he's not interested in shouting to us. Sometimes he just wants to give us that little nudge, that little whisper, that little prompt. I know as a parent, sometimes there are points where I have to shout at fit. If I was stood here and I saw him running out the back and I could see a car coming, the only way that I'm going to tell him to stop is to shout. Yeah? Fair enough. But I also know that I can sit with him on the sofa and I can cuddle up to him and we can chat and we can share life and we can tell each other how much we love each other and we can suggest ways of what we might spend the rest of our day or we might kind of talk about what he might want to do in the future. God wants to do that with us too. He doesn't want to spend all his time shouting at us. It's tiring for him. And it means that we just feel like we're getting it wrong all the time. God's not in the business of telling us we're getting it wrong all the time. Yes, there are times where he might have to shout to us if we're about to do something really stupid, like run into the road in front of a car. But there's also times where he just wants us to be together and to be close and for him to tell us how much he loves us and to guide us in the quiet moments. But what that requires us to do is to believe that he is close. 
Too often, we're expecting a big sign. Too often, our lives are filled with noise and busyness and chaos. We don't know what's going on around us. Sometimes, we need to make sure that we're switching off all the busyness around us so that we can hear the God who is right next to us, walking alongside us, sitting with us on the sofa. The questions that I guess I was working through as I put this talk together, and therefore that I'd like to challenge you with, is do you believe God can whisper to you? Do you believe that he does? Do you believe that he will? And if you do, do you intentionally try and block out some of that noise so that you can engage with the very quiet whisper of God? I read this as I was preparing, and it spoke to me. Hopefully, it will speak to you guys too. It's so simple, and it's oh so difficult, isn't it? We simply let God take us to those desolate places, and we rest. And as we rest, we wait. We wait expectantly because we know this is when God whispers. Our unchanging God uses these seasons to speak to our hearts and to give us rest. Listen for him today, for he is alluring you in your wilderness, speaking tenderly to you and crafting a doorway of hope in your mess. Silence the noise of the storm and the fear of the earthquake and wait. That small voice is waiting for the perfect time. God always speaks at the perfect time. That's what I want my life to look like. I want to recognize the God who speaks in all things. Yes, in the big, in the big announcement, in the loud noise. But also, I don't want to miss out on the stuff that God has got for me in that place of quiet and that place of intimacy. Whether it's a shout or whether it's a whisper, we can be sure that whatever God is trying to say to us, it is in our best interests to listen. It's always God. It's always good. In a world of busyness and chaos and relentless noise, the quiet whisper of God is subversive. It speaks to the personal, intimate nature of a God who is interested and close and involved and desires us to be interested and to be close and to be involved. I wonder, then, whether God sometimes feels a bit frustrated by us. If If Finn, sorry, only ever listened to me when I shouted at him or I did some big gesture, it's re- it would be incredibly frustrating and it would be incredibly tiring and he would miss out on lots of the stuff that I have to say to him. In the same way, as children of God, we need to make sure that we're engaging with God in the big but also in the quiet, in the still places as well. In the same way that Elijah in the story, expected God to be in the big, the dramatic, the earthquake, the wind, the fire. I wonder whether we sometimes get disappointed when we don't get find God there. But is the issue with God? I don't think so. I think the issue is within ourselves and how we expect 
God to speak to us. And until we can get a rounded picture of the fact that, yes, God is in the big, but God is also in the small and the quiet, we miss out on stuff that he has for us. I've got one last thing I'd like you to leave you with. Um, in a minute, I'm going to ask Rhiannon to put an image up on the screen. But before I do, let me tell you another story. I was in London um, on a couple of occasions, uh, and in the midst of the busyness and the hustle and bustle, I was interrupted by God, and I was spoken to in the quiet, intimate whisper of him. The way that happened was through a particular piece of artwork. You may have seen it. Um, Rhiannon, if you could pop it up on the screen for me. It would be amazing. Uh, so this is an image um, of a sculpture. It's a photograph of a sculpture, so it's not entirely as I experienced it. Um, but in the hustle and bustle of Trafalgar Square um, on one occasion, in the busyness of the Saatchi Gallery on another occasion, and on the steps of St. Paul's Cathedral with hundreds of people jostling to get the best um, angle with their selfie sticks and their cameras, I encountered this sculpture of Jesus. This sculpture of Jesus is human size. It's very easily hidden by the crowds. But as I walked through the crowds on all three occasions, uh, one, one occasion knowing that this, this piece of work was there, on the others being entirely surprised by it, I heard the still, small voice of God in the busyness of everyday life speak to me. And I wonder whether he might speak to you through it this morning. Imagine yourself then in a packed Trafalgar Square. People coming and going, noise, lights, buses, advertising, all of the chaos of life going on. And then as you push through the crowds, you come face to face to the person of Jesus in this sculpture. What does he say to you? I'd like to give you just a few minutes to imagine that scenario. Look at the sculpture. Uh, the image of the sculpture on the screen here. Imagine walking through the crowds amidst the busyness and coming face to face to Jesus. And think for just a moment, what does Jesus say to you in that moment? Father God, we thank you for all the ways in which you speak to us. Thank you for the times where we're about to do something stupid and you have to shout at us to get our attention. But we thank you, Father, that you are also a God that is close by, standing with us, whispering in our ear. We're sorry when we allow the noise of life to prevent us from hearing what it is that you have for us in the moment. And God, we pray that you, over the coming days and weeks and months, help us to... Um, Acknowledge your presence, your closeness, um, that intimate whisper in our ear. Help us to tune into that. Help us to push aside some of the noise and the busyness 
so that we don't miss out on all that you have for us. We pray this in your name. Amen.